Well, thank you, David, for your lovely welcome and for your welcome today generally. It's just been lovely to be back with you uh, again. Uh, special thanks to Jim and Kathy who have looked after me so wonderfully uh, over yesterday and today and uh, hopefully tomorrow as well. <laughs> and uh, it's just been lovely uh, to be with you. As I said this morning, I do bring the greetings of the church back home and uh, praying for you as I trust that you will be praying uh, for us in days to come. I noted in passing the um, comment in some article by correspondent of the Irish Times which said, so we are not the kings of the world. Interesting days in which we live. And I felt led tonight to to speak on uh, Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, which reminds us of the importance of our approach to God. And could it be, I wonder, in our day, that the Lord is bringing us low to make a point? We are not kings of the world. We are contingent beings created by God and dependent upon God for our very next heartbeat. So let's read together in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, beginning at verse 9. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I am, I have to confess, fascinated by politics here in the UK, uh, but also in America with the whole democratic, republican thing that's going on there. It's uh, compelling viewing, at least it is for me, my wife tends to disagree, but it is compelling viewing for me. And uh, I was thinking as I was preparing this of uh, Ronald Reagan, the 40th president of the United States, and Ronald Reagan was uh, well known for his cheery nature and optimistic outlook. But on March the 30th, 1981, as he returned to his car after speaking at the Washington Hilton Hotel, he was shot by John Hinckley, Jr. It is said of President Reagan that as they prepared him for surgery, he looked at the surgeons and said, I sure hope you guys are Republicans. You see, he was in a position where he had to rely upon the skill and professionalism of the medics. Jesus teaches us here that we come wounded. We come wounded to him. And the only thing that will save us is not our expertise or our cleverness. The only thing that will save us 
is to rely, to rest wholly upon the mercy of God. You see, in this parable, both of these men are broken. It's just that only one of them realizes it. But both of them are broken. Look at the way in which Jesus even frames this parable. The Pharisee stands apart. And he stands apart in more ways than one. He stands apart from his fellow worshippers. No doubt he's trying to make a point. Look at me. But he is also distanced from God. You see, pride divides. Not only people in their personal relationships, but pride divides us from God. And that's even illustrated in the positioning of the characters. Now look at the tax collector. He stands at a distance. Dr. Luke is signifying that he is too ashamed to venture into that place of worship, and so he stands outside. But it will be he who goes away justified, and this by the sheer mercy of God. Do you know, one of the things I love about teaching through the Gospels is this. The parables of Jesus are an absolute master class in teaching. Honestly, they really are a master class. Because Jesus takes here two polar opposites in that culture to make the telling point. You see, the Pharisees were admired in that culture. When we hear the word Pharisee, we think of Pharisaical, and they're the baddies. If it was an old cowboy western, they would be wearing the black Stetsons, you know? But no, the Pharisees, by and large, were looked up to in that culture as being men of stature and status and of piety. The tax collectors were the quislings of the Romans. They ripped off the people and they were hated. So this is like full-on parable power here. Jesus takes these two polar opposites to make the point. And as Jesus began to unpack this parable, the crowd would have bristled. Because they would have thought they would have known the outcome of this parable. They would have thought, well, we know who the goodie is here and we know who the baddie is here. And that, in part, is part of the power of what Jesus says here. See, the Romans had a tax take. That's why they were taking a census at the time of the birth of Jesus. Tax collectors would make a bid for the particular tax area, and if their bid won, they were bound to meet that tax take for the Roman authorities, but anything in addition was theirs. And that's why they were hated, because they absolutely shook down the people. It was a wholly corrupt system. It was corrupt, it was arbitrary, it was unfair. You would have to be a very, very cold kind of character to want to be a tax collector. Your friends would have been other tax collectors. And this, of course, would be part of the shock value of this parable, uh, that a man like this, that a man like this could express penitence like that. That would have taken them aback. 
he finds that he goes away justified. D.L. Moody, that great evangelist of a former generation, I really like Moody. D.L. Moody uh, didn't like pomposity. The kind of pomposity that we see in this first man. He didn't like pomposity and uh, he was at a, a rally and there was a man there who was praying and he was going on and on and on until Moody had had enough and eventually stood up and said, shall we finish our final hymn as our brother finishes his prayer? He had just had enough. And the pomposity here on the part of this man would make us want to respond. But of course, Jesus in his parables exaggerates things for impact. It's hyperbole. To make us see what we know is true but don't often recognize. We may imagine the tax collector making his way home as the Pharisee continues to pray. So just two things tonight. Pride and penitence. Pride, verses 9 to 12. The Pharisee stands aloof in his pride. And with the insight of Christ, with the Pharisees listening to him, he cuts a sad figure. And secondly, penitence, verses 13 and 14. The tax collector stands afar off. But the key about this man is, he stands afar off in the knowledge of his need. In the knowledge of his need. And that's the key. It's the American pastor Tim Keller who writes that pride is the carbon monoxide of the church. Pride kills relationship. Pride cuts us off from each other and here with God. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said that no man can exalt himself and Christ at the same time. And so when Jesus is saying what he's doing about a Pharisee, probably in the context of Pharisees, he really is pulling on their chain. They would know very well who the target was. He did so in other places too. Perhaps when it comes to pride, he's pulling on our chain here tonight. I don't know. If you're a Christian, but you've come to believe your own press, your relationship with God will not be clear. It will not be clear. If you're not a Christian and you're relying on your own righteousness, look at that Pharisee and just note how far he is from God. How far he is from God. First of all then, pride, verses 9 to 12. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See, Jesus in this parable is dealing with something that is hardwired into our hearts, into our sinful hearts, and that is pride. And it starts, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? The serpent comes to the woman and says, eat of the fruit and you shall be as God. It's where it begins. 
self-exalting. Well, if this Pharisee had been chocolate, he would have eaten himself. Because he just thought he was the bees and ease. There's something wrong in this Pharisee's thinking. And as Jesus, with consummate skill, magnifies it for us, we see it in him, but do we see it in ourselves? There is something wrong in this Pharisee's thinking. You see, they knew at the heart of the Hebrew faith that Israel did not work hard to be saved. Israel was saved by a unilateral act of God, bringing them out of Egypt. Thereafter, they were given the law. The law came after God had saved them from Egypt. Sinai follows the Red Sea. So they knew that God was the one who saved. And they knew that in their history, he had saved them as a people by a unilateral act. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see the types and shadows of how God would ultimately save. And we don't have time to go in that today, but this seed of the women crushing the serpent's head and so forth. Secondly, that that salvation would come through sacrifice seen in the Passover, the daubing of the blood on the door frames. So from the beginning, we see that salvation and acceptance with God are brought to pass by God. Knowing that we are saved unilaterally by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, changes the whole dynamic of our interaction with God. It is not a team effort. The Hebrew faith was the essence of grace, getting something that they didn't deserve, and that response to that grace that came after it. But because of sinful impulses, it had degenerated. And some, perhaps many, had come to believe their own press, that they could rest upon their own righteousness. And that is a killer to true biblical faith. This is explosive, what Jesus says here. For the power of Jesus' parables is that they take people in a direction that they do not expect to be going. And that's what's happening with this crowd as Jesus speaks. We imagine that there would be many who would assume what was coming next, but they would be wrong. They would be so wrong. And you know, this is hardwired into us sometimes, but it's hardwired into those who are not Christians in our world. There are people out there who, if they do believe in God, are relying on their own self-righteousness. Well, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than him. Well, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than her. When the righteousness that we have to attain is God's righteousness. That's the whole key, isn't it? It's God's righteousness. That Jesus came into the world and he lived perfectly. So that as we come by faith in him, his righteousness is put to our account. That he died atoningly on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin so that our forgiveness could be total. That he rose again to conquer 
death and to declare his victory. That he reigns even now at the time of coronavirus and one day will return. And on that day, every wrong will be righted. But that first thing is so important. It's not simply about Jesus dying on the cross to forgive us. He actually does more than take away something when he takes away our sin. He replaces it with his righteousness. And so in answer to the question, can anyone get to heaven by good works? The answer is yes, Jesus did it for us. And so when we see someone behaving like this Pharisee here, we see something that is anti-gospel. It is the antithesis of the gospel of grace. And Jesus is dealing with that here. So many of the problems, God's people, we have in following Christ would be avoided if we kept the nature of God front and center. This Pharisee would be a learned man. You you didn't get to be a Pharisee if you were less than that. If you were to ask him about God's attributes, he would tell you that God is perfect in his nature and therefore perfect in all his ways. He would know deep down that he, as a Pharisee, could never be as God. So what's going on here? Well, somehow, through the sin of pride, he had come to believe that although he could never be as God, nevertheless... His good works gave him leverage with God. See what I'm saying? If you had really doubled down on his theology, he may have said that his good works could earn him salvation. And I'm not sure about that because he would, he would know his Bible. But, but it seems as though he's at the stage where he's thinking, well, you know, I deserve some leverage with holy God here because of what I do. And he is so, so wrong. Believing that his good works somehow commended him to God. And when you think about the scale of it, if you actually understand the nature of God to the extent with which we can understand it, you realize just how utterly, utterly crazy that thought is. That we could ever have any leverage with a God who is infinite in his holiness. Don't get me wrong, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are. But just like Israel and the law coming after, these works come after conversion. As a response to the grace of God, Ephesians 2.10. You see, what makes a joke funny is often the recognition of that grain of truth when something is magnified and we recognize it. And this is what, among other things, makes a parable powerful. It is that people recognizing the grain of truth or the suspicion that's going on here come to see the reality exposed. Jesus, the master teacher, enables them to see the issue more clearly, not least in the number of personal pronouns that we find here. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, and so on. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I, I, I. Quotation says that you can fool 
all of the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. And Jesus' parable is a reminder that we cannot fool God any of the time. Back in Dundee, there was a godly pastor called Robert Murray McShane, and one of his comments was this, that what a man is, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is a nothing more. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is a nothing more. So what are we in our knees before God? God knows. He really does. On Samuel 16, that famous incident where Samuel goes to Bethlehem uh, to choose David to be king over all Israel. And when the family perceive his purpose, it is the oldest brother, Eliab, who is brought out because he's impressive. He's big, he's strong, he's good looking. He's probably intelligent as well. And God said to old Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. On the heart. And this is what is happening here. God is looking on the heart. And what he sees, what Jesus sees and projects of this Pharisee is his pride that separates him not only from others but from God. And then lastly, penitence. 13 and 14, look at it with me. It's moving, isn't it? But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. So the normal way for a Jewish man to pray was this. And here we see the reverse in this tax collector. So laid down by that sense of his unworthiness, he can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. But beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. We take note of the positions and the posture here. Jesus' parables are so well crafted. The Pharisee is front and center. The tax collector is afar off. He's shamed, too aware of his sin even to come to church, as it were. And so we get the picture of the two. Speaking to people who work with those on the edge of society, usually because of addiction and other issues, they will, in my experience, say that it's easier, much easier, to talk to such about Jesus. Because these people know what they are. But in many cases, the hardest groups to reach are those who have much in terms of material wealth, who feel no need for God. And scratch a little deeper, and this almost always sits alongside some kind of self-righteousness. It is the way we are sinfully wired. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The ground is level before the cross. Jesus was once invited by a tax collector to go for lunch. His name was Levi. We know him better as Matthew. 
Luke 5, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, or those who think they are, but sinners to repentance. The people that God welcomes are those who mean it when they sing. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. A number of years ago, I went to see my GP and as I opened the door and entered the surgery, he looked up and said, how are you? And I said, fine. And he said, well, why are you here? I'm guessing that he had used that one before. To the self-righteous who make their way to worship God, God says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? People who rest in their own righteousness do not think there is a righteousness issue, but there is. It's Isaiah, isn't it? Isaiah 64, who says that all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. And the question that follows from that is this, so what's to do? It is to rest upon what Jesus has done. I find... I'm surrounded by really, really high-achieving people. So far, they haven't found me out, which is good. But you know, with high-achieving people, it can be harder. Because they're so used to all their lives having to work for what they get. And that's good. But sometimes when it comes to the gospel, that hardwiredness of achievement is difficult to get around. And to understand it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus has done in the full and complete salvation that he brings. Paul writes it so beautifully in Romans chapter 3 when he talks about the righteousness of God appearing. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that's the thing, isn't it? The gospel is just perfect. The gospel is just what we need because it speaks to the reality of our human condition. The world says, you're basically good. The Bible says, you're basically valued. That's why Jesus came into the world. To live the life you never could. To die the death you could never die. To rise again so that you might know eternal life. It is about Jesus. It is about looking to him. 
It is about receiving a foreign righteousness that is not our own. So that the wrath of God might be propitiated, might be turned away. So that we are no longer under condemnation. A foreign righteousness is ours by faith in Jesus. The one who came to bring this righteousness is the one who is telling the parable. And of this tax collector, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How was he justified? How was he justified? Because he, he was justified by casting himself on the mercy of God. How are we justified? By casting ourselves upon the mercy of God. End of. That mercy of God that has now been fully revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Is it possible to get to heaven by good works? Yes, it is. Jesus did it, but we can't. We must rest by faith upon the righteousness that is in Christ. And folks, in these dramatic days, we just simply don't know what the Lord is doing just now, but we do know that everything is set within his sovereign will. We live in a self-righteous culture. You just have to listen to what's going on today. This woke culture, where everyone's trying to look good by virtue signaling, the latest progressive idea that's coming around. It's self-righteousness in another guise. Look at me and look at how good I am and look at how progressive I am. The need is just there. We need justification. We need to be justified not by ourselves or our actions, but by God so that we can say it is just as if I'd never sinned. See what Jesus has done here. (laughs) How wonderful Jesus is. How absolutely amazing he is. Jesus has taken common assumptions and he's turned them on their head. And this would have been shocking for the crowd who listened. The Pharisee is left trying to build his own bridge to God in this parable. And the tax collector leaves justified. The one that they did not expect to be justified leaves thus. By the one Jesus who in Mark's narrative is on his way to Jerusalem and to the cross. And in that righteous act upon the cross, all that separated us from God is dealt with. In a perfect and just way. You see, that's the, that's the difference between Christianity and Islam. In Islam, Allah may forgive someone but he forgives them at the expense of justice. He just takes the problem away. The difference with Christianity is that God's justice 
is seen in his mercy, and his mercy is seen through his justice as his son dies upon the cross. And that's why the gospel is perfect. Justice is not set aside by the God of Israel. It is dealt with fully and completely in the giving of his son. And here Jesus is on the way to the cross so that all that separated us from God can be dealt with. And casting ourselves in God's mercy, we find forgiveness, sin taken away, and a foreign righteousness applied. The tax collector went away justified. Praying that we will too. As we cast ourselves wholly and completely on the mercy of such a great God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for Jesus. We're so grateful for him. We know, Lord, that we are but sinners and we need the salvation that he brings. Help us always, Lord, whether for the first time or for the 101st time, to step away from our pride and just to trust wholly, to rest wholly upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived, who died, and who rose again for us and for our salvation. Praying in his precious name.